Welcome to the I Create Daily Podcast. I'm Leora Alderson. And I'm Devani Alderson. We're your co-hosts on this journey of creativity and productivity. I Create Daily is for artists in every genre of creating, from musicians to writers, crafters to inventors, bloggers to entrepreneurs. I Create Daily is a movement for creators serious about your art. If you're into creating anything, this podcast is definitely for you. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Hello and welcome to the I Create Daily podcast, a movement for creators serious about their art. I am Devani. And I'm Leora. Our guest today is Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is an entrepreneur, author, and PhD, veteran psychologist, and the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm serving Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Glenn and his company's work theories and research have been published in major periodicals, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Chicago Sun-Times. Formerly obese and disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating. Through his work with his patients and a self-funded research program, Glenn has studied the challenges and successes of more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was Glenn's own personal journey out of obesity, food prison, to a normal, healthy weight. Dr. Glenn Livingston's research led him to create a much more lighthearted relationship with food, which he is sharing with others through his book, Never Binge Again, Reprogram Yourself to Think Like a Permanently Thin Person. Glenn can juggle five balls and believe you can learn pretty much everything you need to know about life from a mountain. Where did you find that? Where did you find that? I wrote that like 20 years ago. Is that, is that on some site? That's funny. I can't juggle five balls. It's That's still funny. there. You can't okay. anymore. Well, we're eager to learn more about Glenn's creator's journey of entrepreneurship, creating help, and writing a book, and in particular, his message of how changing your mindset changes your life. Welcome, Dr. Glenn Livingston. Welcome. Thank you so much. Please call me Glenn. Okay. Got it. I will awesome. definitely call you Glenn. Thank you for that. So, well, there's so much to dive into, yes. so we're eager to get to learn more. So let's go from the beginning, kind of, where did you start in terms of your creativity? What is, so, um, how did you start? How did you start writing your book? And let's just go from there. Yeah, when did you decide well, to start writing your book? I, the book was originally a journal that I kept about me versus my inner pig. And I'll explain to you how I got to that. Um, I actually did my dissertation on creativity and dreams many, many years ago. Wow, awesome. But I, I never intended this to be a creative endeavor. It was a painful struggle for me to figure out how to overcome my own food addiction. Mm -hmm. And I never intended to publish it. I just thought that this was a way I'm going to figure it out. Um, and I happened to be a minor part of a publishing company as I was getting divorced. And I needed something to do because I was going to have to close everything down. And the CEO said, why don't you publish this journal? And I said, you're out of your mind. I'm a sophisticated psychologist. I'm not going to get up there and say, I have this pig inside me. <laughs> and, um, and I did. And now we have 600,000 readers and it's, it's crazy. Wow. It's really crazy. So, yeah, no, but I, I, I was a, I, I come from a family of psychologists and psychotherapists. There are literally 17 doctors and social workers and counselors in the family. Wow. And that the standing joke is that if something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. 
and we, but when you ask me where did my creative spark come from, it, the iconic moment I think was when I was four years old and I heard my dad on the radio, and I came running downstairs and I said, "Mommy, mommy, what's that?" And she said, "Daddy's on the radio." I said, "She explained to me what a radio was." And I said, "Well, what does Daddy do?" And she said, "Well, he makes people happy when they're sad." And I said, I want to do that. And why is he on the radio? And she said, so he can make more people happy when they're sad. And I said, I want to do that. Mm. So, so I never wanted to be just a country doctor. I, I, although there's nothing wrong with that, I wanted to influence the masses with psychoeducation and like make, it, make a dent in the world like that. So my life has been a journey to, to work that out. And, Sorry, go ahead. You're saying, Anne. Well, just a little bit of background about how I came to this. Um, I was a child and family psychologist. I wasn't an eating disorders therapist. And I had a very large practice on Long Island. But I, I'm 6'4", and I'm reasonably muscular. And I, I discovered that if I, if I work out for two, three hours a day, that I could eat whatever I wanted to. At least back when I was 17 or 18 years old, I could. But when I got to be 22, 23, and I had patients, and I was married, and I was commuting two hours, I couldn't work out for you know, three half hours a week, much less three hours a day. But I found that these foods took a hold of me already and they had a life of their own. And so I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and psychology is not just an intellectual field. You, you have to lend these people your soul. You have to be their body, mind, and soul. And I couldn't be 100%. I would be thinking, when can I get a whole pizza or get to the deli or get a box of snack wells? And it was torture for me because first and foremost, I always wanted to be a really good psychologist. So being from a psychological family, I went the psychological route and I figured maybe it's not what I'm eating, it's what's eating me. Maybe there's this hole in my heart. And I went to psychologists and psychiatrists and all the best people in the New York area. You figure that I would know them given the family that I came from. I even went to Overeaters Anonymous and took medication and I would get a little thinner and then I would gain weight and I would get a little thinner and I would gain weight. And it was a very, very soulful journey, which I don't regret taking but it didn't solve the problem. I started to zero in on the solution from a couple of different vantage points. One was that I didn't have children and I never commuted in my, my ex-wife, she traveled an awful lot. So I had a lot of time and I had another career consulting for industry. So I knew a lot of what was going on in the advertising world to get people to eat things that, you know, believe that they're really healthy when they weren't. I saw the billions of dollars of, um, of money that was going into engineering these food-like substances. It's not really food, but it's like hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. And, and then it gets all packaged up in a way that makes you think that it's healthy. So like I remember talking to the VP of a major food bar manufacturer who told me that they exploded when they took the vitamins out of the bar and they made the packaging look really vibrant instead. And in nature, a variety of colors, a diversity of colors and vibrancy signals the availability of a diverse amount of nutrition. It's like that green lettuce and purple cabbage and yellow carrots and you know the really beautiful colors of the salad, which is where our appreciation from color comes from in the first place. Yeah, but, but they were faking us out. They're faking us out. And then I was looking at the animal studies on what happens when you short circuit your pleasure mechanism. So evolution prepared us with, or, or God, or whatever you want to think about it, like, gave us a certain capacity to deal with pleasure. 
And the reason they gave us that capacity to deal with pleasure is so that we would do the things we needed to do to survive. But evolution didn't prepare us for chocolate bars and potato chips and pretzels. And, you know, we didn't have those things on the savannah. Right? There weren't in the tropics. There's no, there's no tree full of Doritos in, in, in. <laughs> so, so I was looking for correlates in animal studies where I could find what, find out what happened if you short circuit or overstimulate the pleasure center. And I found a set of studies by some psychologists named Milner and Olds way back in the late fifties and early sixties that wasn't getting a lot of attention, but what they did was they put electrodes originally in a rat's brain and then they kind of went up the evolutionary scale to almost, almost to humans. And they put it in the pleasure center and they would wire it to wire it to a lever and they would allow the rat to press the lever at will. You want to guess what happened? Yeah, well, he would press it frequently. <laughs> like, like thousands of times per day. Wow. What do you think happened if the rat was starving and had a choice between food or pressing the lever? The lever. Yeah, absolutely. In, until, they were, until they're almost dead. What, what about a nursing mother that's uh, nursing her pups? Would she choose to nurse her pups or press the lever? Yeah, press the, the lever. lever. It's a, yeah. What, what happens when you short circuit the mammalian brain and give it more pleasure than it was designed to handle is you hijack the survival drive and it starts to ignore its survival needs. Now, I don't think that we are, I don't think that anybody's putting electrodes in our brain. I'm not that paranoid. But is it that far a cry from doing the same thing to have a McDonald's on one corner and you come out of it and there's a Burger King across the street? You know, and, and how can you get away from fast food and how can you get away from the five to 7,000 messages beamed over the internet and the airwaves about how this is what you should have? And how many people do you talk to you say, well, I could never be thin because I don't like fruits and vegetables. Their, their survival drive has been hijacked. So I started to, started to start to turn some of the shame I was feeling into anger that something else was going on. At the same time, I was looking at alternative addiction treatment because I was coming out of Overeaters Anonymous after another failed attempt. Well, it was successful for a while and then it failed. And I came across a guy named Jack Trimpey who wrote a book called Rational Recovery. And he changed my paradigm. He doesn't like psychologists, so I don't really know him personally, but I really like him. And in his book, he works mostly with drugs and alcohol. And he teaches people that, look, the seed of addiction is the reptilian brain. The, the place where we're, the food industry is targeting is the reptilian brain for drugs and alcohol, the same thing. The reptilian brain doesn't know love. It's more of a sociopathic creature. Yeah. The, the, the reptilian brain looks at something in the environment and says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Eat, yeah. mate, or kill. Love, concern for tribe, concern for family, concern for long-term goals, uh, music, art, spirituality, creativity, religion, everything that we value uniquely as humans, that's more in the upper brain and the neocortex and to some extent in the, like if, if, the, um, if the brainstem is here, the reptilian brain is here, then right above it, kind of in the middle is the mammalian brain and then on top of it is the, um, the neocortex. The, the thing that we think of as love is more in the mammalian and neocortex than it is in the, in the lizard brain. And as a consequence, you can't really love yourself out of an addiction. So everybody's going around saying, well, what's eating me? And if I have this craving for chocolate, it's because I'm not loving myself enough. And that's, 
probably the wrong approach. What, what you need instead is more of an alpha wolf approach, a, a, an approach of dominance. So when you think of an alpha wolf, when a challenger comes up to challenge for leadership, that alpha wolf will snarl down the challenger and basically say, look, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? And he's trying to preserve order. He doesn't actually want to kill the, the challenger, he wants to keep him in the pack, but he wants to keep him in line. And then I started thinking, well, gee, is, is overeating more like controlling your bladder? Like I, my bladder generates a very powerful biological urge, but it's gotta be expressed in a very particular way. I, I can't pee in my mother-in-law's living room, right? <laughs> if, if I have to go, then I have to get to someplace that I can go. It, you know, or your, your reproductive organs or your, your ovaries or your testes, they generate very powerful urges, but we don't run out and kiss attractive people in the street that we don't know. Right. So, so I started to think that, okay, so I have these biological urges. They're not bad. They've been hijacked and misdirected for profit. So every time that I'm looking for love in the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's probably some fat cat in a suit with a white mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank, right? Um, so this is the embarrassing part. This is, this is how I finally recovered after 30 years. And I, I left a little part out about the study that I did. I can tell you that afterwards. But after 30 years, I decided that I had an inner pig. I was going to call my, my lizard brain, my reptilian brain, my inner pig. Might have been an unfortunate metaphor. You can call it your food demon or your food yeah. monster or whatever you want to call it, but I called it my pig. I decided I was going to draw very clear lines in the sand. So I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. Very, very clear. And the reason is that it has to be a rule as opposed to a guideline. And if I heard any little voice in my head that suggested that I should have chocolate during the week, like, you know, Glenn, you worked out really hard. You, you deserve it. You're not going to get any with it. I would say, well, that's pig squeal. And the pig was squealing for pig slop. And I don't eat pig slop. And I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> And as primitive as that is, as primitive and crude and crazy as that is, it wasn't a miracle, but I started to get those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up and remember who I was and what relationship I wanted to have with food. And that eliminated my sense of powerlessness. That eliminated my sense of hopelessness. I started experimenting with rules little by little. And, you know, I recovered. I, I, I had been about 60 pounds heavier I had, um, I had triglycerides over a thousand at one point. The doctors were telling me I was going to die in my thirties and it all got better because I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. That's when I kept the journal. I turned the journal into a book. I, I have a strong background in marketing and copywriting. So I knew how to edit the journal in such a way that it would be very persuasive. And I knew how to get the word out, but, um, Basically, it's because I found something that worked, and and I then I couldn't not write it once I started writing, and I couldn't not write it. So, right. well, there's so many things about uh, what you've been saying, and, and so it's like okay, the challenge: which one to pick up to expand on first? Um, backing up first to when you were serving clients and as a psychologist, listening to your clients and their woes, and you know, of all kinds, right, from very serious, like you said, suicide. And you're there thinking about what you want to, you know, can't wait until the session is over so you can get your pizza or your chocolate or whatever. Mm -hmm. What is piled on top of that is a tremendous amount of guilt, you know, which really 
compounds it and makes it worse, you know, because you know, psychologically that, you know, it's like you're, you're feeling like uh, you're totally off track. Well, it's like the trap of knowing too. It's like, you know, cause you're the psychologist, like, you know, some of the answers, but then you're also conflicted yeah. inside. You're not, because, you're not performing. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, so, sometimes it sucks to be a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> right. no. So, yeah. So, but I mean that in a way it's like, many of the those in the creator's journey in our in our audience those who are creators artists writers etc they're drawn to create and yet at the same time are often their own you know nemesis by getting in their own way through various problems self-doubt self-conflict uh, yeah and, you know so so you you did choose kind of a challenging metaphor or analogy the farm animals because in a way you know psychologically you could be programming yourself to dislike yourself more right i mean mm -hmm. was that was that ever an issue for you it wasn't an issue for me it's been an issue for a lot of clients and prospective clients and i try to explain to them that it's not really you any more than your bladder is you yeah. and you need something which helps you cultivate a sense of um anger and the need to dominate rather than an inner wounded child that you want to nurture back to health or a cute little pet yeah so as in many people are concerned that their self esteem is going to go down if they implement this method. What usually happens is people's self esteem goes up hmm. because they, as, as crazy as it sounds, it forces a separation between your constructive thoughts, your self loving thoughts about food and your destructive thoughts. And as you really learn to separate and identify with the constructive thoughts more as you, you make better choices you behave better, you start to get results, and then you feel better about yourself. So I, I always tell people that self-esteem and freedom really sit on top of discipline. It's not really, um, it's not diametrically opposed to it like a lot of people think. Right. Yeah, I really like that. And it really correlates to with the creator's journey and how it's, it's less about beating yourself up. I know a lot of creators think that if they put strong rules or strong boundaries, maybe it's like, they're not like you were mentioning, it's not loving myself. It's beating myself up and I need to not be, but at the same time, there's a difference between beating yourself up and then just looking at a picture realistically and saying, well, if you want to achieve this thing, whether it's a health goal or a creative goal, then you have to put some kind of boundary in place. And like you were talking about before, you need to draw lines of, this is when I'm gonna do my work. This is when I'm not going to eat what I know I don't need to eat. And sometimes you have to put the, whether it's referring to the inner pig or the inner lazy person, the inner potato couch, whatever you have to do, so that that alpha voice is not, is like over this, the softer voice that doesn't necessarily like drive us to moving. Yeah. I tell people it's like an iron fist in a velvet glove. <laughs> <laughs> and what you want to do is commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity. There are, there are actually two mindsets. And if you look at the psychology of winners, you know, when Lance Armstrong is, I imagine this is what he's doing when he's setting out to win the tour de France, I imagine from the very beginning, he visualizes himself crossing the finish line victorious and he commits to it. When an Olympic archer is shooting for a bullseye, first of all, they know exactly where the bullseye are. There are very clear lines around the bullseye before they let go of the arrow. They visualize the arrow going in when a little girl wants to ride up a hill with her bike in one shot. She visualizes herself on top and what that does that commitment with perfection 
it, it allows you to purge your mind of doubt and insecurity. See, especially where some toxic pleasurable substance is concerned, progress not perfection as a commitment tool really means I'm just gonna try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. On the other hand, if you make a mistake, you're not supposed to get overly involved with the self-castigation. It, it's, it's kind of like touching a hot stove. If you mistakenly touch a hot stove, you wanna feel that pain for a second because if you don't feel that pain, you're not gonna know what to pay attention to. And that correlates to some guilt or a little bit of shame when you first make a mistake because you did make a sacred commitment and you did, it did mean something to you. But you don't say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well just throw my whole hand down on the stove. <laughs> or you know, if you chip a tooth, you don't say, okay, I might as well go get a hammer and bang the rest of them out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what you, it turns out that the over-involvement with guilt, the perseveration on guilt and self-castigation after a mistake is a pig's game. The pig is trying to get you to feel too weak to resist the next binge. It's binge motivated in and of itself. And it's very difficult for people to continue binging if they refuse to yell at yourself. I would bet that your audience would find that if they if they softened that self-castigating voice after they procrastinated for a day or you know didn't get their chapter in a time or something like that, I, I would bet they would find it hard to continue procrastinating if they refuse to yell at themselves about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And we are basically, after all, part animal and part divine. Yeah. You know, it's our consciousness. And so for me, the metaphor that works pretty well as also is the parent-child, you know, like I'm parenting myself kind of thing. Mm. And, you know, at first, in the early stages, it's the parent's role to teach the children, like you said, how not to poo in public, you know, how to have civil human manners and not the animalistic manners, you know, which basically were all part animal. Uh, so then as we evolve through that, but I can imagine for you in a family of psychologists and doctors and being one yourself, there had to be some added weight of helplessness and embarrassment um, and perhaps even strained relations. I don't know. I, I can only imagine it would have been especially difficult for you because it, you know, phys- physician heal thyself. You might have thought that you should know the answer. Was that a part of your experience then? Going to Overeaters Anonymous was really embarrassing. To, to walk into Overeaters Anonymous as a doctor was really embarrassing. It, yeah. it wasn't so hard to see other doctors because I've had other doctors come to see me about different issues and we all have our specialties and you, you can't pick yourself up by your own shirt collar. You don't have the leverage. So part of what we're trained in as psychologists is to get a lot of help ourselves. And the best psychologists are the ones that are always self-reflective and understand that they're, they're only human and they need that outside perspective also. But going to Overeaters Anonymous and walking into a room full of people that said they just couldn't stop. And that was, that was really hard. Yeah. Yeah, That was, that was difficult. Yeah. So now as, a human being as well as a psychologist. And I know it might be hard for you to just, you know, like separate this out in your mind, evaluating your own experience, but the incredible pull and sway of addiction aside, did you discover that there were anything, there was anything missing in your life that contributed to your going down that particular avenue of addiction? Well, I I did this big study just as I was figuring out the solution. And I learned an awful lot about myself in a soulful way when I did it. One of the things I found was that people that struggled with chocolate, and I I always started with the chocolate binge. 
that was always where I started. Then I would go to pizza after that to slow myself down. And I don't have to tell you the rest. Yes. But, <laughs> but people who struggled with chocolate tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. Uh, the other findings there were people that struggled with crunchy, salty things tend to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things tend to be stressed at home. Um, and they can overlap and everything. But my real struggle was chocolate. And so before I started working with people about that, I decided I'm going to go ask my mom and my family if they know anything about why would I go to chocolate when I feel lonely or brokenhearted. And I was in a bad marriage and you know, it made sense that I was feeling lonely and brokenhearted. But why would I go to chocolate? And my mother got this horrible look on her face. She goes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> she says, I'm so sorry, honey. And I said, mom, what? She says, well, when you were about one year old, my dad, your grandfather just got out of prison. And I adored this man my whole life. And I didn't know that he was guilty and he was guilty. And I was devastated and really depressed. And just around that time also, your dad was a captain in the army. My husband, your dad was a captain in the army. And they were talking about sending him to Vietnam and I was terrified. And I was just about pregnant with, you know, a second child and I was going to be a single mother with a ex-convict father and, you know, no income. And I was terrified. And so here's what I did when you would come and run to me wanting a hug or some love or some healthy food. I don't think they knew what was healthy in 1964, but that's another story. Yeah. Uh, when you wanted that, I had a little refrigerator on the floor and I would put a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator. And I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. Oh. And I, I could keep staring at the wall and you'd run over and get your Bosco out of the refrigerator and you'd open the bottle and you'd suck on it and go into a chocolate sugar coma. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. and if, if I thought that if this were the movies, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and I'd never have a problem again, right? right. The problem would just be gone. Well, we had a hug and a cry. It was actually over Skype, so it was metaphorical. Yeah. Um, and I learned all sorts of things about my mom that I never knew. I led to all kinds of questions. And I learned all sorts of things about myself that I never knew. I forgave myself. I forgave my mom. But I went on to eat even more chocolate. Yeah. You know, do you know why I ate more chocolate? Because you thought it was like a connected to like a self-love thing before you figured out the not self-love thing? Yeah. My... My pig told me, there was this little voice on my head that said, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Your mama didn't love you enough. Mm -hmm. And she left a big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life, we're just going to have to binge, 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 binge. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point that I said, maybe it's the voice that's the problem. Maybe it's not. I mean, maybe I could have a chocolate-sized hole in my heart and not eat chocolate. Maybe I don't have to fix that chocolate-sized hole in my heart. I mean, it's not easy to find the love of your life and, and heal that and, you know, go on from there. So that could, that could have taken me 20 years, or I could just figure out how do I disempower that voice. And so I started to be very interested in what it said, figure out where the lies were within it so that I could recognize it instantaneously. And then I started to say, I don't even have to, I don't even have to argue with this thing because it always has the wrong goal in mind. All I have to do, and I've learned this from Jack Shrimpery at Rational Recovery, you just have to recognize it and ignore it. And that's what I did. That's what I did. And that's, so if you ask me if I learned things about myself, yeah, I learned all sorts of things about myself for all the conversations. Yeah. But the things I learned were more useful in my psychotherapeutic journey than in my 
journey out of overeating. Yeah. So I. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it's kind of like if the emotions are a big fire, like a big bonfire, mm-hmm. the um, the voice of justification is poking holes in the fireplace. And the reason that the fire is doing damage, if a fire can warm your house, you can't, people light fires on purpose. You, the reason it's doing damage is because there are holes in the fireplace. And so I started focusing on fixing the fireplace instead. And I found it was much quicker, much easier to do. And then when I started working with clients about it, I found they were much more amenable because you don't necessarily have to go to all these dark, painful places. And it doesn't have to take five to 10 years of contemplating your navel and reaching nirvana to, to make this happen. You just like, what's the rule that you want to follow? Why does your pig say that you can't, shouldn't, or won't do that? Where's the lie in that? And I got really good at that and um, it helped a lot of people. So yeah, and help yeah. a lot of people and continue to and will will continue to with your book. Um, and one of the things that we see a lot in working with creatives, uh, as well as in our own life, is how it is that, you know, it is through the journey of living our life that we find increasing layers and levels of purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like like you clearly, you, you have created a few companies. So you have a little bit, of, you know, you definitely have an entrepreneurial streak. You mentioned I definitely have an entrepreneurial streak, yeah. You mentioned, you know, copywriting and you've gone from psychology to and working with institutions to entrepreneurship to now writing a book, which you may never have done, you know, were it not for that issue and that that challenge. And creative problem solving, because not many people, especially with the psychology background and the, like, there's this big self-love movement. Not many of us would go against the grain and be like, no, I kind of need to come at it from a different angle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a little scary, and it's not necessarily in concert with the best practices of my profession. So I, <laughs> I, I offer it as coaching and education. It's, yeah. Well, no, but I mean, I think this is where it's like it's important to recognize that there's no one way for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know, and since everybody, you know, all the birds are singing the same, you know, note, so to speak, relative to the self-love movement, you know, there needs to be an alternate note sung, you know, as well for those that can hear that note better. Um, Well, and one of the secrets of my success, I I call it the voice of contrarian reason. If you look at any problem or any market, there is always something that the vendors in the market are just copying each other with. And it becomes a very, we call it marketing incest. They're just copying each other. and, And there's some critical need that's being ignored in the market because of that. And if you can be the guy, who's, guy or gal who stands up and says, the emperor has no clothes and why isn't anybody saying this, then people will pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I, I recognize that I had that here and that that's, that's the path that I saw to get it out there and, and market that. So Definitely. Yeah. So d- has this opened up for you interest in writing uh, more books as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Be- be- because the most common thing that happens uh, – my, my, my first and foremost goal is to help a million people a year stop binge eating. And we're not, we're not near there. We help maybe 200,000 people a year to stop binge eating. So when we get to a million, then I'm going to push even harder to write more books. But the thing people keep asking and we're developing a program for is how do you use this method to eradicate negative thinking and transform um, difficult emotions into self-confidence and, and self-control? And so, especially after people stop binging, they are left with these emotional turbulences and they want to know how to deal with that. So I'm, 
I'm going a little deeper into my psychological roots and building something to help people with that. That's, um, it's still kind of in test in the testing phase. So I'm not really talking about it much publicly until I'm hundred percent sure that it's working, but, um, yeah, I'm definitely doing that. I was going to, I decided this would be misogynistic, so I'm not going to use use the title. But I reserve "never bitch again," meaning that you're n n never going to talk about yourself um, negatively again. Never going to let that listen to that complaining voice. So, yeah, but I'm not going to use that though. But, well, it, it, it could be good for an article, perhaps. You know, yeah, you know, maybe an article. Even yeah. not the entire book title, but so much of you know, of course, again, as you know, the psychologist, so much of addiction, you know, basically has the same roots, just diff different forms. You know, it arises from a similar thing of stimulating the pleasure centers, maybe something missing, something lacking, and the wrong focus, essentially. So do you have, have you had people or opportunities to work with people in any other area? Oh, so when people have a black and white addiction, something you can give up entirely, like drugs or alcohol, if there is a moral component to it, and I, I happen to believe that drugs and alcohol are a moral issue because if you know that you are going to get into a car and possibly kill or maim somebody, um, if you have a drink, then I think it's wrong for, for you to drink. So I don't, I don't buy the 12 step philosophy that it's not a moral issue. Uh, but I send everybody to Jack Trimpey of rational recovery for that because he's been doing it for 25 years. And my philosophy is somewhat different. It's much more forgiving. It's because you're not really going to kill anybody besides yourself with food and you're going to do it really slowly and you're not going to spend all the family finances and it's not really a moral issue in the same way. So if you try to apply my philosophy, which is much more self-forgiving to drugs or alcohol, then you wind up continually forgiving yourself for having another drink, having another drink. And I, I think that Jack Trimpey has it down better. The kinds of addictions that I do work with, with the same method that work really well are more complex behavioral economies, like um, sometimes gambling, some, sometimes sex addiction, sometimes um, procrastination, people that are having difficulty staying with a work schedule, exercise, you know, people that can't get themselves to exercise regularly, sleep routines, that, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So yeah. um, you wrote, how long did it, when did you actually write your book? How long did it take you to write it? Well, it took me eight years to write the journal. Oh, right. And it was 2015 that I was getting divorced or just starting to get divorced. And I spent that summer editing the journal into a book. And we published it in October of 2015. And um, I think by October of 2016, it was hovering between the number one and the number three book on, on weight loss for Amazon free candle side. So, yeah. When you were journaling, did you have a daily ritual, that uh, creative ritual around the journey, journal? And um, same thing for your writing. Do you have like a daily routine for creativity? That... I, I do. So I used to, well, it depends if I'm trying to solve a big problem or not. I, I used to run problem solving workshops for AT&T and Lipton and Novartis. And we, we actually, I actually ran the workshop where the name Nextel used to be a big telecommunications giant. We actually helped them come up with that name and solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is first we would define what the problem was. And then we would say, okay, now what if we were going to make the problem worse? What are, what are, you know, 20 or 30 ways that we could absolutely destroy this business by making the problem worse. I found that's an incredible way to remove the sensor. 
And so when I start to journal in the morning, I'll say, what problem am I facing most today? What would be the biggest win for me today? How could I make sure it doesn't happen? And I'll come up with 10, 20, 30 different ways that I could destroy myself. And in so doing, I can then turn them around and it frees up a lot of energy. And then I, I write about what, what it would be. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to reframe your day from this is the worst possible scenario and that's not going to happen because I need this other stuff to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you do seem to respond a little bit to your own, you know, like alpha, like, like, you know, get your act together kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> I do. Yeah. So, so, do. Do you, so do you respond also to like the positive motivational things you see out there or does it really, does it turn you off? And is you know, what is your relationship with all of that? Um, I think that the positive affirmations and vision boards and law of attraction are necessary, but not sufficient to affect change. Mm -hmm. So the reason they're not sufficient is that if I, I'll give you an example. I worked with a woman the other day who said she is having a horrible time getting an affirmation about being a good mother to stick because there's this voice in her head that says she's the worst mother in the world. And I, I dug into that and I found out the reason that she was stuck with that voice was because there was a behavioral contradiction. She was jumping to shout at the kids way too often. And so we used the never binge again methodology to make her confident that she wouldn't be shouting at the kids and then the negative voice disappeared. So it wouldn't be enough to, to have her say, I'm a strong, confident mother, um, flexible and able to adapt to my children at all times. Okay. You could sh you could stand on your head and shout that all day long, but if you see yourself shouting at your at your kids, um, so there's that. There's also there are secondary reinforcers and hidden gains in the negative thought. So I would call this a hidden therefore statement. Sometimes a thought gets stuck in your head, like I'm the worst mother in the world. I'm, I'm horrendous. Therefore, I might as well avail myself of the only pleasure that I can get, which is drugs or food or alcohol or gambling or whatever the short-term indulgence happens to be. And if you don't identify and disempower that, then the affirmations and the law of attraction don't have their same impact. I could give you three or four other hidden forces that are at play with that, but that's, that's my thinking about positive thinking. I think it's, you know, I, I'll journal about gratefulness. My, my girlfriend now has me journaling about gratefulness every day. And I think it really helps. Yeah. But um, I think in the absence of addressing those other factors that you're, gosh, I'm good enough and smart enough and gosh darn it, people like me, it's, it's not going to do it by itself. Yeah. 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 How do you, um, how do you get people who don't necessarily respond or they don't naturally respond maybe to being the alpha for themselves? And maybe that's, I, I don't know where that stems from. I'm sure it's different from everybody, but how do you get them to sort of, or not get them really, but help them see a different perspective on being their own alpha and responding like uh, to themselves? Because I know a lot of people, I mean, I could myself included sometimes it's hard to always listen to your own voice of reason or be your own like accountability uh, person. And so how do you help people who aren't naturally inclined? Mm -hmm. I tell them that character trumps willpower mm. and, and that I'm not going to tell them what they should or shouldn't do. I don't tell anybody what to eat. Absolutely. So I'll give them an example. I'll say, if you go into a diner and there's a $10 bill on the table 
and the waitress hasn't seen it because she didn't take her tip yet. And she says, I'll be right back. I just have to get you a menu. And there's nobody up front. There are no windows, nobody that would see you take it. What would you guys take the $10 bill? Would you take that? No, of course not. Yeah. How, how come? Uh, it's not our integrity character. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because you're not thieves. Exactly. The waitress worked hard for her money and the kind of person you were just not the kind of person that would do that. Right. So here's a situation where you can indulge in self gratification, uh, but you don't because as a matter of character, you've decided that it doesn't require any willpower whatsoever. It's just not an option. Right. And so I tell people, okay, let's, let's step aside and let, let's not say, well, I'm someone who, I'm, I'm just not going to have chocolate or I'm going to avoid chocolate. Could you be someone who could avoid chocolate forever? Most people will say no. Well, um, could you be kind of become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate and then go, wait a minute, maybe I could. And it, it turns out we make these character decisions all the time. People say that they don't have the ability, but you don't collect, you don't go and kick a policeman in the tush because yeah. you're mad at them. Right. Or yeah. you don't push old ladies into traffic. And yeah. there are all sorts of things you just won't do because you've made it, you've made a, you've eliminated the decision as a matter of character because of the person you want to be. So I asked them to think about well, who do you want to be? Who do you want to become? And we work on that instead. I love that. And before yeah. we go, okay, we need to let you go and get on with our next interview, but we want to hear um, about everything you can learn about life from the mountain. <laughs> I love you guys for finding that. That's so cool. Um, in my forties, while I was figuring a lot of this out, every Thursday I would go and try and hike another 48, uh, one of the 48, 4,000 foot mountains in New Hampshire. Wow. And I, I, I did it over time. Yes. And I discovered a resilience and persistence in myself that has carried me through so much else in life that I didn't have beforehand. Because sometimes it's just a matter of finding the trailhead. Sometimes you're all excited about going there and you know, the signs aren't marked well and it, it's three hours away and then you wind up driving another two hours to find the trail and then you don't have the time to do it. And I learned about, you know, preparation and frustration tolerance. And I learned about committing with perfection that you had to visualize the top. You don't, you know, you don't fall down and then just say, well, I might as well roll all the way down the mountain because screw it. You just get back up and you keep going. So all of that. Yeah. I learned about being by myself. I learned about being able to think in solitude and all that. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's, you have so much wisdom and, and like solutions for mm -hmm. the world for this very serious problem. And so I really appreciate that you're bringing this message uh, more fully, that you're letting your book get out there again more fully. And so we hope everyone will go and check it out. It's Never Binge Again. Reprogram yourself to think like a permanently thin person. Sorry. Could, I, possi could, I, po could yeah. I possibly tell them where they can get it for free? Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. If you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red button, you're going to see a place where you could sign up for the reader bonuses. If you do that, you not only get the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. It's, it's free in the electronic format. So if you want the physical copy, you, you need to pay. Um, but I'll, I recorded a bunch of sessions because I know this is a weird topic in theory. It yeah. sounds harsh, but it's really not. It's very compassionate. And I wanted you to hear the transformation of powerlessness and despair mm -hmm. to hope and enthusiasm. So there's a bunch of those, and I made a whole bunch of food plan starter templates. So whether you're paleolithic or keto or high carb or low carb or point counters or whatever you are, you can have a whole bunch of rules to start with. So all at neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. We'll awesome. definitely link that in the show notes as well. Thank you again so yes. much, Glenn. Thank you. You guys are great. Thanks. Okay. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Thanks so much for joining us for the I Create Daily podcast. Please let us know what creatives you would like us to interview and what topics you would be interested in hearing more about. And if you enjoyed this show, please leave a review on iTunes. We value your feedback. We read all the reviews and it just helps us get the word out on the I Create Daily podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much.